Radio Craycon. Hi there and welcome to episode 3 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thank you very much for joining me and a huge thanks also to all of you who have taken the time to listen to episodes 1 and or 2 so far. Much appreciated. As ever, Get Your Creek On will make a hell of a lot more sense to you if you've actually watched the episode of Jonathan Creek in question today which is Series 1, Episode 3, The Reconstituted Corpse. Now, if you haven't watched any Jonathan Creek before, then, um, well, I really think that's a a sad indictment of the various ills in our society. You've had uh, no reason not to watch it, and yet here you are in this pitiful position, so uh, get a grip. The Reconstituted Corpse aired on Saturday 24th of May 1997 and I should now like to ask the helpful and friendly Australian man to get us going by reading out the heading of the next section. Episode Synopsis Formerly average-looking lady Zola Zavzhevsky talks on a talk show about the plethora of plastic surgery she's had and the tell-all book she's written about it. In a very Jerry Springer-esque move, the producers bring David Kirchin, her former surgeon and lover, onto the set to confront her. They bicker, he threatens to sue if the book's published, and Zola's manager Sam Brickman puts a stop to the interview. Back at her house, an angry Zola tells her daughter Victoria what happened. Sam, who definitely seems like the kind of guy who would have worked for Jimmy Savile, sorted it all out though and the interview was re-recorded. They discuss Kirchin, who Victoria describes as a twisted, jealous nobody. Later on, a towel-only wearing Victoria notices a peeping Tom filming from over the garden fence. She gets changed into a pair of black PVC trousers and heads out telling Zola about their weird visitor before she goes. Jonathan, meanwhile, is heading to the theatre, where he finds a shell-shocked crew standing around. The IBS-ridden elephant that was integral to a new trick in the show has died on set. Jonathan ends up having a sad drink of brandy in the pub with the elephant handler, who says that at least the elephant died doing what she loved best. Show business! Later, David Kirchin is in a weird Bond villain-like room and realises it's time for Zola's interview to air. He gets himself some wine and turns on the TV but is interrupted by the doorbell. He goes to the door, looks through the peephole and is shot in the eye to death by a gun. At the crime scene a bit later, the police find a diamond earring lying on the doorstep. The interview is also on Maddie's TV. She's disgusted by the details of Zola's miscellaneous surgeries and so flicks through the other channels before switching off the idiot box to instead dribble over the photograph she has of a hunky man. At lunch with Barry the next day, they end up discussing the fact that Zola has been arrested for Kirchin's murder. Maddie heads to Zola's house, finding that she's somehow got bail. Zola says that she was at home when the murder occurred, watching her interview on the TV. She denies that the earring found on the doorstep is hers, even though skin cells found on it match hers. Later on, Jonathan is in the pub, still, and spots Maddie across the bar, talking to a really boring eight-foot-tall man in a grey suit. 
He heads over to say hi, and her friend introduces himself as Shelford, Maddie's blind date, with whom she's evidently very disappointed, much to Jonathan's delight. Instead of leaving them to it, he relishes the opportunity to make her even more uncomfortable by hanging out with them. When Shelford goes off to the bog, Maddie angrily shows Jonathan the photo which he duped her there with. Jonathan asks her all about the Zola case, and Maddie gives him the rundown. Shelford returns shortly afterwards, having possibly pissed all over his trousers. The next morning, Maddie has breakfast with Zola, and they talk further about how to prove her innocence. As they wander about the garden talking further, they come across a camcorder that's been dropped over the garden fence. The peeping pervert camcorder. Watching its contents, they see a filming of scantily clad Zola on Thursday evening, evidenced by a calendar in the house. Crucially, it then shows her turning on the TV and flicking through the channels. Maddie realises they were the same channels that she herself scrolled through the other day, and this is proof that Zola was home on Thursday night, and can't possibly have been Kirchin's killer. All charges are dropped, and that's the end of this week's episode. Nah, not really. The police take the camcorder away, but only after Maddie and Zola have made copies of the tape. At her flat, Maddie can't be arsed answering the phone when it rings and lets it go to the answer machine. She listens as someone leaves a silent message that could easily have been mistaken for heavy breathing. Which would be a strange thing to do in an answer machine. I always find it better to do it when some... Wait, no, sorry. Uh, I mean, it, the, the people who do that tend to get off on the fact someone's listening. As I understand it. The door buzzer goes and she goes down to take delivery of a new wardrobe. Unfortunately, the delivery guys bugger off and leave her with it there on the pavement. She's saved though, as Shelford appears from nowhere and she exploits his desperation to have him hump the wardrobe up several flights of stairs to her top floor flat. After he thankfully pisses off, Maddie opens the wardrobe to inspect it and Zola's corpse falls out. WTF? That means what the fuck? Police subsequently confirm she died of a massive head wound, having been bludgeoned with a blunt instrument. Maddie implores Jonathan to come round and he inspects the stairwell, the flat and the wardrobe. Even the genius himself has no idea what's gone down. At what was previously Zola's and is now presumably Victoria's house, a police officer finds a piece of metal piping. Subsequent analysis shows that filings from it were embedded in Zola's head. Jonathan mulls it all over, watching and re-watching the peeping Tom tape of Zola on the night of the murder. After Maddie mentions rubbish, he heads outside and rakes through the bins outside her flat. Meanwhile, Shelford appears again and offers Maddie some sexy underwear. Her rejecting messages just aren't getting through to him, so when Jonathan reappears, Maddie takes the opportunity to kiss him passionately and shows the doofus that he has no chance with her. Jonathan in the bins find a VCR tape, and when they watch it, he exclaims that they now know who killed David Kirchin. They head back to Zola slash Victoria's house and announce that they've worked it all out. It turns out Sam and Zola mocked up the peeping Thomas tape, plus a fake VCR of TV shows for Zola to play on the video player to make it look like she was flicking through live channels on Thursday night. It was in fact though Friday night because on Thursday she was out and about killing David Kirchin. 
After faking the alibi and convincing Maddie of it, they accidentally gave her the tape with the faked flicking channels rather than the copy of the Peeping Tom tape. Zola then snuck into Maddie's flat to retrieve it, found it and threw it out the window into the bin. Unfortunately, this coincided with Shelford and Maddie shifting the wardrobe inside. Zola was about to be found out so she took a chance on hiding inside the wardrobe. Unfortunately, this exact moment coincided with her having a massive brain hemorrhage, having been hit on the head by the metal pipe falling off some scaffolding. When Maddie opened her gorgeous new wardrobe, she was met with a corpse. Later, as she and Jonathan return to her flat after the elephant's funeral, she's accosted on the doorstep by Shelford's wife, warning Maddie, the absolute harlot that she is, to stay away from her husband. That's right, someone had actually married the boring old bugger. There really is someone out there for everyone. Well, not you, but most people. Episode Analysis There was a real two-for-the-price-of-one feel with regards mysteries in this episode. Firstly, how could Zola possibly have killed her ex-lover when there's incontrovertible proof that she was elsewhere at the time? And then how did her corpse end up in Maddie's wardrobe? The solution to the first was certainly a pretty inventive one, although it's ever so slightly convenient that Maddie just happened to have flicked through the exact same TV shows that Zola pretended to. And then throughout the series, um, Jonathan often says things along the lines of how it's important to separate what's likely and what's plausible. And the solution to the body in the wardrobe kind of follows this notion. We assume that Zola was placed in there deliberately by someone when she was already dead, and it's just unlikely to occur to most of us that she may have somehow climbed in there herself prior to dying. In fact, it was a horrible combination of accidents, coincidence, bad luck, and whatever else you might wish to call it. It's one of the real classic Creek mysteries, I think, and it genuinely misdirects you into thinking a third party was involved. Great stuff. I talked a bit in the previous episode about how enjoyable the scenes between Jonathan and Maddie are when they start arguing and bickering, and this episode did not disappoint in that regard. When Shelford heads off to the toilets in the pub, the discussion about him and Maddie's perceived intentions are really, really funny. Shelford was just a superb character with some really memorable lines. From little acorns, mighty oaks do grow. That was a good one, and then also, one of Cupid's arrows certainly has found its mark. Nigel Planer pops up again in Jonathan Creek further down the line as a completely different character, and you can see why they'd want to work with him again. The making of the fake tape's a good example of how time and technology move on. These days you could do something like that pretty quickly at home on your laptop, whereas back then it would have been a monumental effort really involving renting videos and having second video players. There were a couple of little things I did pick up on. The whole tracking panning issue with the camera from behind the fence, that didn't really make much sense I felt the explanation there. Maddie unlocks the cupboard to open it when Zola's body falls out, and yet, when we see how Zola got inside the cupboard to begin with, she just pulls the door closed behind her, leaving it unlocked. Boy, I really hope someone got fired for that blunder. And then, when the delivery drivers bugger off without helping Maddie, you actually see them drive off in completely the opposite direction to where the van was facing just a second before. Boy, I really hope someone got fired for that blunder too. Anyway, we're moving along from the episode analysis now and disembarking from this podcast-shaped train 
because it's just pulled into the celebration of Location Information Station. One and a half location informations for you this time round. The half being Zola's snazzy house. It's only half because I do know roughly where it is, but not its very specific location. It's somewhere in or near to Sunningdale, a village in Berkshire, and the production team chose it because they required a long single-story building to service the voyeuristic filmmaker storyline. The house was apparently owned by British actress Diana Dors previously, uh, the UK's answer to Marilyn Monroe as some called her. Not long after she died, her husband Alan killed himself with a gun in Sunningdale. I don't know if it was in this house specifically. If it was though, it's certainly a building with a very tragic past, what with what also happened to Zola when she... Oh wait, no, no, she was fictional, wasn't she? Never mind. The other location this week is the restaurant at which Maddie and her agent Barry had lunch. It's called Lemonia. It's a Greek restaurant on Regent Park Road in London, and it's still operating today, describing itself as Primrose Hill's favourite neighbourhood restaurant. Although this is episode three of the show, this was actually the first ever scene filmed for Jonathan Creek. And another little detail for your interest is that in the scene, Maddie runs across the road to buy a wardrobe from a furniture store That shop is called Graham and Green. It's a real-life furniture and homeware store, and it's still in operation today as well. So the next time you are planning a sightseeing trip to London, you can add this to number one on the list of priorities when you get there. Creek Connections At 29 minutes 59 seconds, as the delivery drivers scarper without helping Maddie, we see them driving past a small dark Renault 5. In 1989, Alain Auriel became the only driver to win a World Rally Championship event in a car that small when he drove his Renault 5 to victory in the Ivory Coast leg of the championship. The current president of the Ivory Coast is Alassane Ouattara, who was previously an economist for the International Monetary Fund. The IMF's policies and their impact on the country of Jamaica were key focuses of the 2001 documentary Life and Debt, the soundtrack of which opens with a song called G7, performed by Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. Ziggy Marley's wife, Orly Agee, was formerly a vice president of the William Morris Agency, which, in 2017, was renamed Endeavour. Endeavour is also the name of a 14-mile-wide crater on Mars. The delicious and timeless confectionery item, the Mars Bar, was first manufactured in 1932 in Slough, the town in which classic TV comedy The Office was set. In a legendary episode of The Office, during which a trivia night takes place, branch manager David Brent cheats by getting a quiz answer over the phone from his father's doctor, who confirms that the song In the Summertime was performed by Mungo Jerry. 
Mungo Jerry's main songwriter is a gentleman named Ray Dorset. The county of Dorset, on the south coast of England, features a World Heritage Site called the Jurassic Coast, which is home to prominent seaside destination Durdle Door. Durdle Door was the filming location for the music video of Saviour's Day, the UK's Christmas number one in 1990, sung by Sir Cliff Richard OBE. Sir Cliff is famous for many things, among which is his acting performance in the 1961 film The Young Ones. The Young Ones is also the name of a popular British sitcom from the 1980s. One of the four lead characters, hippie Neil Pye, was played by Nigel Planer, who played Shelford in today's episode of Jonathan Creek. Wow, that, um, that genuinely gives me the chills. And some people have the gall to say there's an explanation for everything. To paraphrase curmudgeonly old man Victor Meldrew, I can't believe it! Another Creek Connection, next time. Get your Creek on. In this final segment, we propel ourselves backwards into yesteryear for a look at what was going on in the world on the day of the episode first airing, Saturday 24th of May 1997. Bob Dylan turned 56, Priscilla Presley turned 52, and Michael Jackson turned 41. That's the Irish Archbishop Michael Jackson, by the way, not the ever so slightly more famous one that you're thinking of, the English footballer who played for Tranmere Rovers and Preston North End. His birthday is on the 4th of December. Actor Tim Allen was arrested for drink driving in Michigan. I wonder what former Army Colonel Dick Iverson of Northern Michigan from episode one of the podcast would make of that news. Space Shuttle Atlantis landed at Kennedy Space Center after a nine-day mission during which it docked with the Mir Space Station and travelled a total of 3.7 million miles. And it was also the imaginatively titled Bermuda Day on Bermuda, which marks the first day of the year where Bermuda shorts are worn as business attire. Far more interesting than all of that, though, was the letters page of the Crawley News, which I find myself reading. There was a plethora of people getting in touch with responses to a recent article about the occult in the paper, with a wide spectrum of views on the matter. AP Heath wrote in, he got the star letter of the week. He said, Following your recent article with quotes from myself about the dangers of black magic, please can I clarify one point? There is no clinical evidence to suggest that indulging in the occult can cause schizophrenia. Readers should also be aware that occultism is not confined to Ouija boards. I would ask though that everyone please steer clear of the occult in all its forms, for the sake of your physical and spiritual health. This was followed by a letter from the appropriately named Mr S.J. Church, who said, God has given us clear warning about involvement in the spirit world along with so many other words of guidance. He tells us that if we do this, we will be blessed, but if we do that, we will be suffering the consequences. All involvement with the spirit world is dangerous. And then he signs off with the somewhat enigmatic warning, the choice is ours. 
However, there was a somewhat more cynical letter from a Mr. J. Radford who didn't believe in any of this stuff. He wrote, Ouija boards, ghosts and spirits. You'll have us believing in fairies, gods and ghosts next. The only spirits that could bother these people are in the wine bottle. One large meteorite to hit the earth and their spirits would go the same way as all of us. Now, Mr. Radford may come across as a bit of a smart arse, but I don't think he's all that clever, actually, because he thinks you find spirits in wine bottles. Not quite true, pal. You've got your fermentation, wine, mixed up with your distillation, spirits. That's literally all there was happening in the world on the 24th of May 1997. There's nothing else to see here. The friendly Australian man hasn't recorded a heading for the last section, which is why we are now going to transition from one piece of music straight into the other. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On, and a huge thanks again to all of you for listening to the episodes so far. It's much appreciated and you can think of yourself as an integral part of a small but really quite cool club. Please do tell any of your friends who you think feasibly might be interested in listening, or indeed colleagues, acquaintances or even your enemies. If you know how or where and you can be bothered, please do leave a review for the podcast, it would help a lot. Thank you. You can email the show, it's getyourcreekon at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is at CreekGet, and you can help cover the costs of producing the show, which are enormous, by buying me a coffee. That is www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash getyourcreekon. If you like podcasts, and I assume you do because you're listening to one, I've got two to plug right now, both of them mates of mine. Ed, he runs one called And What Do You Do? He talks to people about what they do, and it's excellent. And also my good mate Adam in New York runs All Said and Run. It's a combination of chat about running and music, and I would highly recommend both of those shows for your ears. The next episode of Get Your Creek On will be for Season 1, Episode 4, No Trace of Tracy. A has-been rock star accused of abducting a teenage girl despite being handcuffed to a radiator at the time. It's a good one, so come back and join me then to see what happens. Try not to do anything too daft in the meantime and I'll catch you next time. I'm Toby, bye for now. <laughs>